I'm glad you've joined us today for this. And by the way, I'm looking out and realizing there's a bunch of you here, okay? And I, if I think back to this time last year, there were not this many of you here this time last year. There was about half this many here last year. And so God has been doing some really incredible things. But here's what it means. I want to reiterate what Jess was talking about earlier. If you're new around here and you really want this to become your church family, you really want it to feel like family and operate like family, it doesn't happen here in the service. Like in the service, we're, we're doing this and it's great and it's a great time to get together and we get time to hang out. But you really are going to make connections with people by joining a team or joining a group. And that's when things start feeling like family. And I also want to remind you, because this is something that I had to remember many, many moons ago, that that takes time. It doesn't happen immediately. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time and it takes investment and intentionality. And so we create all these environments so that you can become a part of that family. But ultimately, you got to make the jump, and you got to be willing to do it, okay? So I want to encourage you to do that. Like Jess said, group sign-ups, groups are starting this week, and all that stuff is out in um, the lobby when you, when you go outside. So don't be afraid to do that. We want you to, okay? We would love to have you be a part of our church family. And so... Um, we are, if you are new with us, if this is even your very first week, I'm glad you're here. And uh, you did catch us in the middle of a, well, it wouldn't be hard to catch us in the middle of this series because it's taken 30 weeks, okay? We've been doing this teaching for quite some time as we've been going through Romans. But for those of you that have been here since the beginning, guess what? Yeah, that's right. We're halfway, all right? Last week was week 15, and there's 30 weeks, and this week is week 15, or week 16, it's not 15 twice. I, I know math. I do math. All right, I was a math major for one year in college. All right, that's another story. All right, this is week 16. All right, we are halfway, and, and we are kind of turning a corner a little bit here in the book of Romans. So if it is your first week with us, you're, it is a good week to join us. We're, we're turning a corner, and we're getting into something that, um, well, let me, let me start with this. The point of this whole series and the point of Romans is that Paul is writing to Christians that are in Rome. And Rome doesn't have an official church yet. There is no centralized church. This isn't like later in the, the Roman Empire where you have the Holy Roman Empire or where, you know, none of that stuff has happened yet. What's going on in Rome at the moment is the Roman Empire is starting to rise into power and Christianity is starting to take hold. But there are groups of Christians throughout the city that are meeting, almost like house churches around the city. There's no centralized church. And those churches are being led by leaders who have just kind of, almost like, like group leaders, you know? Like in their house, they're just like, hey, let's get a group of Christians together. I know this person, they accepted Christ. I know that person, they accepted Christ. Get them together. And so it's really important that all of these people spread out throughout Rome have a solid grasp on what the gospel is, what the truth is, and what it means for them. And so through the book of Romans, that's what Paul is doing. That's why this is such an important book of the Bible. They're all important, but that's why this one is so foundational. Because, because Paul really is laying the whole thing out so they have it. And so that they are united on what the gospel is and what they're supposed to do with it. And he spends the first eight chapters, what we've talked about so far, laying a really solid foundation for the gospel. And talking about how there's bad news for all of us, bad news for, for moral people, bad news for the Jews, bad news for everybody. But the good news is that we can be justified, and that's the word he used, that means to be made right. We can be justified before God by faith in Jesus Christ. 
So you believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, his death on the cross in your place, and his resurrection. You put your faith in him for salvation, and you can be justified before God, made right before God, and that is secure and solid, and you have that, and nobody can take that away from you. And then you stand on that, having been justified. Now what do we do? Now God takes us through a process of transforming us and molding us and changing us. It's a process that we call discipleship or sanctification, all right, purifying, like becoming more and more like Jesus. And the big bomb that that Paul dropped on us recently was the way we do that is not by the law, the Old Testament law that the Jews had. You're not saved by the law, and you're also not transformed by the law. You are transformed by the Spirit, all right? And he has laid that case out, and then he says that what we talked about last week, there is nothing you can go through, no trial, no persecution, no famine, no sword, nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus, all right? So he lays all that out, and that's like the exclamation point at the end of chapter 8 on all of that. And now one of the big questions, he turns a corner into chapter 9, which is where we're going today. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to to Romans chapter 9. I would encourage you to bring your Bible with you, whether that's print or on your device. Um, We also will put it up on the screen for you. But particularly in this series, we're going through a lot of stuff in this series. So it's coming like fast and furious on the screens. And so it is very important, I think, to be accustomed to reading in your Bible and to be able to see what's around it and do your own research and figure things out for yourself. But uh, we're in Romans chapter 9, and Paul, see, there's there's this issue. The issue is Jesus, who was a Jew, he was an Israelite, came as the Messiah and gave his life on the cross And salvation is by faith in Jesus, not through the law. The problem is, you still have the nation of Israel. You still have all of these Jews that didn't accept Jesus and are following the law. And God made promises to the nation of Israel. And God had a special relationship with the nation of Israel. But now they're outsiders looking in, according to Paul's message. So what about them? In fact... Paul, who was an Israelite, who was a Jew, who was ultimately a Pharisee, who knew the law inside and out, who persecuted Christians and then ultimately accepts Christ. The question, this is a big question, what about them? Is God going to fulfill his promise to them? Because he hasn't fully done it at that point. He hasn't done it yet. So is God, has God failed them? What, what do you do with all these people that had such an incredible relationship with God that many of which now actually stand opposed to the gospel? In fact, Paul would have been accused and surely was accused of being a Jew, being against the Jews, being anti-Jewish because of this message that he was now teaching. So what does it mean? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for the nation of Israel? And he's going to spend the next three chapters talking about that, which is going to be four weeks for us in this series. What does this mean for Israel? Now, I would venture a guess, and this is just based on my own experience and and whatever, that most of you in the room and most Christians in America have never given this a second thought. What, What does this have to do with Israel? Because for them, you think about it in this context, Almost everybody, or the vast majority of people, especially in Israel, around here, so that are that are turning their faith over or putting their faith in Jesus, are Jewish. 
So there's this constant question. It's what half of the, the New Testament is about. What do we do about the law? What do we do about all these practices and everything? And, and are we supposed to go back and still do those? Or still supposed to do the circumcision thing? Or the, you know, like, like all those kinds of questions. A lot of questions. And then in Rome particularly, yes, you have a lot of Gentiles. And Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew. Okay, so it's like Jews and then everybody else, Gentile. So you have a lot of Gentiles in Rome that are a part of this church. But likely the people who are leading these house churches are people who are Jewish. Who are Israelites. And so the question is, what does this mean? Do, 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 you know, does the rug get pulled out from under us? Is all of that gone? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to think about it? How does God deal with the Israelites? And it, that would be very much on the forefront of their mind. So it makes a lot of sense that Paul would spend a long time talking about this in the book of Romans to these people. But today, because we are 2,000 years removed from that culture and time, and because most people in our area are not Jewish uh, by heritage, this isn't something that is thought about a lot or talked about a lot. And the idea can be that God is just done with Israel. God is done with the Jews. And that is not at all true. That is not at all true. And Paul makes that very clear as we go through the next few chapters. So what about them? Does Paul hate them? <laughs> Has Paul rejected Israel? Is he done with them and moving on to something else? What, what is it? That's the question that, that is burning in people's mind after he puts this exclamation point. And it's the question that Paul feels the need to answer and spend time answering. And so that's what he's going to do. And so I, before we get into it, I feel like I need to say this um, or kind of put a, a qualifier on this whole thing. Because I understand that some of you have never thought once about this. And I also understand that some of you may be brand new believers or you haven't done a lot of study in the Bible. And so your knowledge of the Old Testament and timelines and people and, and, and children, who's the parents and who's the children and, and what happened with everybody might be zero. Okay, so I'm going to do my best as we go through to explain all of that. But you, you do need to understand that when Paul is writing this to these Christians in Rome, they know that. They understand the whole history. So there's some assumed knowledge in this. He doesn't have to go into detail because they already know. And I understand that you may not already know. So I'm going to try to bring up to speed as much as possible there. But also can't talk about all of it because we've only got an hour no. Okay. All right. Shorter than that. All right. So we don't have a lot of time. So I want to encourage you to begin studying that on your own, though, because it's very important background for us as Christians and to understand this. Um, so I may move a little faster and you might not catch it all. So make, you know, make notes what you need to go back and look at and figure out and, and answer. So for those of you that are starting from square one, I hope this isn't going to move too fast. Um, and I also want to say there are some of you in the room that have studied this at length. Okay. You heard it. All right, we got, we got Bill and Brenda here. We have others, okay? Brenda is a Jewish believer, okay? And so she is, this is her, like, whole, this is her life and her faith, and it matters. And Bill is a scholar of the word and has studied this at length. And have all, they've also spent time uh, as part of a ministry in Charlotte that is for Messianic believer or Messianic Jews. And so they know this backwards and forwards, okay? So if you have any questions or want to talk, I'm sure they would both love to talk to you about this. Brenda's pointing to Bill. Bill would love to talk to you about this. And there are others in the room that have, that have studied it at length, too. And so I want to apologize before we get going because I'm not going to say as much as you want me to. All right, there's just too much here. There is, there is so much here in, we're going to do a whole chapter in a day. That's a lot, okay? There's so much here in Romans chapter 9. I can't get into all of the details and all the intricacies. And so I'm going to, what I'm going to try to do is give you a good survey of it so we understand what Paul is doing here, what he is saying 
here. And I'll give you some points, places that you can go and you can look into it more and you can research and study. And then groups will do that also this week, okay, when you get together in your groups. All right, so with all of that said, how does Paul think about Israel? Let's go to Romans chapter 9, verse 1. We're going to read a good bit of this, but not every single verse in the chapter. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. So what we need to see, Paul, is this is like as emphatically as he can say it. He's saying, honest to God. I know you guys think that you people may think that I'm against Israel or that whatever. And you need to know with the utmost sincerity, it's my, it's the spirit and it's my, it's everything within me. What I'm about to say is true. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So before he says anything about Israel, he needs you and me and the the, the believers in Rome to know that he has a deep love and passion for his people. How could he not look at what God had blessed them with? Look at how God had blessed them with all of these things. And you can go back in your own study and you can go through these things and examine what each of them are. The glory, the adoption, the covenants, the, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, the fathers. And for goodness, Jesus came through them. So how could I hate them? How could I think that they are, that they are rejected? I, and you ha- we, we need to understand how personal this is. This is not just Paul writing about some people over there. This is about himself. It's about his mom. It's about his brother or sister, about his best friend growing up, about the, 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 the religious leader, the good religious leaders who taught him and discipled him as he was growing up and learning the scriptures. This is not just a, a, a concept for Paul. This is real. These, this has a face. It has faces. And so when he thinks about the fact that Israel had been blessed and all these people he loved had been blessed so deeply by God and loved so deeply by God. The fact that they had not accepted Christ broke his heart. That their Messiah had been standing face to face with them and they missed it breaks his heart and he would like nothing more than for them to receive their Savior. And he says he would be accursed for that. That doesn't mean he would give up his salvation. That's not what it means. He would go through, this is a good, I think a good representation of it. He would be willing to go through the pain that Jesus went through all over again. If it meant that his people could be saved. And so it's not for a second that that he hates Israel or that he's against Israel or anything like that. His heart's cry and his passion is that Israel will be saved. Because God loves them and has blessed them so deeply. And before we go any further and we talk about how that works and, and what the future looks like for Israel, which we're going to cover over the next, the next few weeks, 
I think it's important that we have the same heart. And it's a little harder, I think, for us to do that because it doesn't have the same face that it had for Paul. Like, you may not know people who are Jewish. That's just not as common here. But to be praying for them, to be praying for the nation, maybe you've wondered why is the nation of Israel important? Because the nation of Israel is important to God and has a special place with him. And so we need to be praying for them as individuals and as a group. All right. God chose them. God blessed them. Now, some people would look at what Paul is saying. And yes, of course, God, we, we love them. God loves them. So, but, but now, Paul, you're saying that salvation comes by faith in Jesus, faith in the Messiah, and not by the works of the law. And now you're saying that salvation is open to everyone, whether you're Jewish or not. Now Gentiles can be a part of God's family. So what about what God did with them? Has God failed them? Did, did God promises not work? What, what is happening with Israel? That's the question he's answering. All right, verse um, 6. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. So he's saying it's not that God's promise hasn't worked. It's not that God hasn't kept his word. What we'll see here is that they misunderstood what that promise was and how it worked. All right. He says, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So just because they're part of the nation doesn't automatically make them a child of God. Okay. They're not all Israel who are of Israel. And he's going to give a couple of examples, and these require some history. So we're going to talk through the history a little bit. Okay. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Okay, we need history here. And some of you know this already and some of you may not. So if you know it, bear with me as we talk about it. I want to make sure everyone's on the same page. All right, God chose Abraham. His name was Abram at the time. But he chose Abram to have a special relationship with, to build a nation out of. And he made promises to Abraham. We call this the Abrahamic covenant, the agreement that God made with Abraham. And that promise was that he would have many, many descendants, that, um, that he would have particular land. It was the promised land. Okay, that was the land that was promised to Abraham. And that in him all nations would be blessed. And so God makes a promise to Abraham that he would have this great nation and this great inheritance and all of this. Uh, the problem at the time was Abraham didn't have any kids. So where, how's that going to happen? And his wife, her name was Sarai, and it was changed, God changed it to Sarah, but I'll call her Sarah. All right, his wife, Sarah, could not have children. And so they didn't know how this was going to happen since Sarah was barren. And um, so they certainly were not taking into the account the fact that God can do miracles. And maybe for lack of trust in him, they hatched a plan for Abraham to have a child with one of Sarah's maidservants, Hagar. And so sure enough, Hagar becomes pregnant, and um, 
And when that happens, then Sarah, it's, oh, it's a whole drama, honestly. And Sarah starts despising Hagar, like she thought it was a good idea to begin with. And then she sort of changed her mind and, and got mad at Hagar. Anyway, Hagar ends up having, and Hagar's like, goes off and is pouting about that. And, and God comes to Hagar and says, Hagar, you're going to name this child Ishmael. And I'm going to bless him and, and all these great things, all these promises for him. And so she ends up having the child Ishmael. So Ishmael is technically Abraham's firstborn blood son, though it's not by Sarah. And it wasn't what God told them to do. It was their own plan. And so about when, when Ishmael's roughly 13 years old or so, 12 or 13 years old, God says, Sarah is going to have a son. And you're going to name him Isaac. And he is going to be the child of promise. I've chosen him. Not Ishmael. Now, Ishmael was the firstborn blood son. Now, Ishmael was, had the right to it, but God said, Isaac is the child of promise. And, sure, and, and, and of course, uh, famously, Abraham laughs at God. <laughs> and, so, and, and Sarah does too, like, because he's 100 years old <laughs> and she's 90. And so, like, how is this possible? But God does the impossible. And so she gives birth to Isaac. And the promise is not by, what does he say, right? Um, they are, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. So the promise, God said, I'm passing the promise through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Now, some people might look at that and say, that's not fair. That's not right. Ishmael, he came first. He's, he's, he's not, he has no fault in this. And, and so the promise should have gone through Ishmael. But God's choice was Isaac. And that tells us something very important about God, something very important about his promises. And that's that the promises of God are not passed down by right. They're not passed down by right. They're passed down the way God chooses for them to be passed down, by his choice. Okay, that's a very important point for us to understand. So he's saying, just because in, in this, this context, as he's thinking about Israel, he's saying not all Israel, are not all, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Just because they are born by blood does not mean automatically that they are his child. That's important because there were a lot of people in Israel that were standing on that, and that was enough. They would say, well, I was born an Israelite, so I'm good with God. Nope, Paul's saying not necessarily. Never hasn't worked that way all along. Okay? So what Paul is doing, he's pointing way back to the beginning to show them that what he's talking about now is actually not something new. It's actually something that started at the very beginning. That this has never been passed down by right or by birth. Okay? All right. So and then he gives another example in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebecca, that and Rebecca is becomes Isaac's wife. So Abraham, Isaac, right? Isaac marries Rebekah. When Rebekah also had conceived by one man, that one man is Isaac, even by our father Isaac, there you go. For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. That was God's choice. The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. 
Now, a couple things that I need to point out. Okay, so you've got timeline, just so we're picturing the family tree. You've got Abraham, you have Isaac, and now Isaac has twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And Esau comes out first. It's a whole story, okay? Esau comes out first. He's the firstborn. He should have the birthright. That's how things worked for them. The blessing should have been passed. The nation should have been built. If you're following those traditions, it should have gone through Esau. But instead of Esau, God chose Jacob. And Paul finds it very important to point out that this was decided before they were even born. So they hadn't done anything good or bad. It wasn't a matter of Jacob was a godly man and Esau was not, and therefore God chose Jacob over Esau. It wasn't that. In fact, by all accounts, Esau was a pretty good, hardworking dude. God chose Jacob, who ultimately is renamed Israel, all right, who then has sons, and those sons become the tribes of Israel. Okay? He chooses Jacob, who becomes Israel, to build the nation, and that is his choice. And it tells us something very important about the choice is that we already know that the choice that God makes is not about uh, your bloodline or your birth. But even in this case, he goes to this example because nobody can argue that with with Esau and Jacob. They both have the same father, the same mother. There's no argument because, like, you could look at Ishmael and say, well, God didn't ordain that birth. You know, know, that wasn't God's idea, and Ishmael was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you you could poke holes in that, but you can't poke holes in Esau and Jacob. And what we see there, not only is that it, that it is, is this the blessing of God not passed down by blood, but the blessing of God is not passed down by effort or merit. Because Paul makes it very important to point out here that it's not that Esau was a bad guy and Jacob was a good guy. Or Esau was faithless and Jacob was faithful. That it doesn't have to do with your performance or your effort or merit. That that the blessing of God is not a heritage or a reward for good behavior. And that's never how it's worked. It didn't, even, it didn't work that way even with the fathers. And I, and I think it's very important to point out when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. He's not saying that God hated Esau or that God loved Jacob and, and, and he hated Esau. This was about, and those aren't, it's not a great translation into English. We have a difficult time translating some words into English. It's J- Jacob have I chosen and, Israel, and Esau have I not chosen. Uh, Jacob have I blessed and Esau have I not blessed. And it's really not even about them. It's about the nations that would come from them. It's about, it's about Israel coming through Jacob, and through Esau came the Edomites. It was the Edomites. And ultimately, the Edomites did serve Israel. So what God said was true. The, younger shall, the older shall serve the younger. All right? And so I, I think it's important here, just real quick before we keep going, to point out there are some people who have taken this passage that's about Israel and about how God has dealt with Israel and they take it and they try to apply it directly to how God deals with us today. And that's not a good thing to do because if you take this out of context and you take a lot of the verses here out of context, you can make it look like God is choosing some people for salvation and not choosing other people. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about how God chooses to show mercy. And he doesn't choose to show mercy 
by what your bloodline is and who you were born to. And he doesn't show mercy to us based on our behavior or our effort or our good works or whatever. That he chooses something else, and he has every right to choose that. Because he is God, and he gets to decide how it works. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? So you look at, you know, you look at Ishmael and Isaac, or you look at Esau and Jacob, you say, well, is God unfair? Is, he, is God sinning by not following the prescription that we've put out? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. That is such a boss statement from God, by the way. <laughs> He's like, hey, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm God. And I'll decide. I will decide how mercy is given. That's my choice. So then, verse 16, this makes it really clear, okay? So then, it is not of him who wills. Or I think another great word to use here is demands. It's not of him who demands or demands by right. Nor of him who runs, which means to put forth effort or work. So it's not of him who demands by right, and it's not of him who earns by effort, but of God who shows mercy. God, Israelites are not owed God's mercy because of their ancestry or because of their religious devotion. Any more than you and me are, by the way. It is the mercy of God given in his way that brings us into his love and his family. And unfortunately, Israel's reliance on those two things caused them to miss their Savior, to miss the Messiah, because they thought it was by birth and by effort. And it wasn't then, and it isn't now. And God... You, they, they're asking questions. I'm sure Paul's getting asked questions about whether that's fair or not. Is it fair that they've been led so astray, that they've gotten so far off track? Is it fair that Israel didn't, that God didn't make it more clear to them or, or whatever? And, and without this sounding dismissive, I, I, I think this is important for us in, in, our, in humility to accept that we don't get to decide what's right or fair. We think we do, but we don't. And, and let, me just, let me give you a hypothetical here, because let's say, let's just say, that God, the creator of the universe, the manufacturer of humanity, the designer of our souls, decided that the only way that people could be saved is if they climb to the top of Mount Fuji in Japan. Let's just say, let's say God, God said the only way to be saved is to climb to the top of Mount, don't, by the way, don't cut and paste this out of the video or whatever, all right? Like, you won't believe what this guy's saying, all right? <laughs> let's say, let, some people, probably some people would love to do that. But anyway, I might do it for fun. Just No, I can't risk it. Okay, so let's just say that God said the, the way to be saved, the only way to be saved is that you have to climb to the top of Mount Fuji in Japan. He would be well within his right to make that decision. That's his decision. 
right? He is the creator. He is the Lord. He is God. So if he wants to do that, he could do that. I'm thankful he hasn't. But let's say that he did. Well, my reaction to that could be, well, that's not fair. I don't live in Japan. I don't even know how I would get to Japan. I've never climbed a mountain in my life. I've driven to the top of Dunn's Mountain, but that's not the same. <laughs> right? I can say that's not fair. There, there are people who couldn't get to that mountain. There are people like that. It's not fair of God to do that. And you know what? I can't believe in a God that would make people climb to the top of Mount Fuji. I can't believe in a God like that. And so I won't. Because God has to be fair by my definition of fair. And that doesn't seem right. And so I'm not going to believe that he even exists. Well, guess what? I would live my life with my back turned to the God of Mount Fuji. And when my time came and I died and I faced him, I would realize instantly that what I believed to be true had absolutely no bearing on what was actually true. And he is not responsible to what I believe to be true. I am responsible to what actually is true. And so the journey for us, the journey for you and me, should not be to try and find a belief system that feels right or to find one that we like. It should be to find what is true. To find what is true. And I want you to know that's my commitment. That's what I'm trying to do in my life is to find and live by what is actually true. Even there are times I don't like it. There are times where if me as a human, I would make a different decision. But my challenge to you is to commit your life to the pursuit of truth and not what makes you comfortable or happy or reconciles with our culture or whatever else. Okay? And so... God says it's not by your bloodline, and it is not by your effort. He chooses how to show his mercy. And his choice is to show his mercy through Jesus. And that is not unfair. I believe it to be the truth for all of us. And so I'm responsible to that. And quite frankly, I think it's the best option he could have presented. I think it's the most inclusive option I can think of. Because anybody, without any effort, can come to Jesus and put their faith in him for salvation. No matter where they were born, no matter what family they're a part of, no matter where they grow up in the world, They can put their faith in Jesus. No matter how much sin they've done in their life, no matter how good or bad they've been in their life, they can put their faith in Jesus and be saved. And if that's the way that God says he is going to show mercy, then that's the way he shows mercy. And for us, and what Paul is saying here, for the Jews as well. And so they have to come to the point of accepting Jesus as their Savior. Even though he has blessed them and given them so much, it should be a head start towards Jesus instead of a hindrance. And if that's the way he's going to show mercy, that's his choice. And he will use all kinds of things in order to do that. Even people's rejection 
So he goes in the next section. He gives an example. All right. It's not by he who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And in verse 17, because they're thinking about, okay, yes, but what about Israel? Because Israel, as a nation, has rejected Jesus, right? What is God doing? Why is he allowing that to happen? Verse 17, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, so God spoke to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And now this is rewind, right, back to when uh, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, and God raises up Moses to lead the people out. And we have the plagues, and Pharaoh says, let my people go, and Pharaoh keeps saying no, right? And God says this to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Now, again, this is a verse could easily be taken out of context and be, be used to try and say that um, this is talking about us, our salvation today, that God shows mercy on some, that he chooses some people, but that he hardens some other people, and those people aren't saved. That is not what Paul is saying, okay? So do not be confused by this. He's talking about this particular situation and the situation that they're in. And he gives the example. And what you see in Scripture is that um, God says he's going to, he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him to let my people go, and he, I'm going to harden his heart, and he's going to say no. And then I'm going to show my glory through the plagues, and then ultimately you will be free. But So you read through the Scripture and all the things happening, and so uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And he says there are times where it says God hardened his heart, and Pharaoh said no. There are also places where it says he hardened his heart, and he said no. It's a mixture of both. And so I think what what is important here to notice, there's a couple things. First and foremost, God did not do anything in Pharaoh that Pharaoh was not already doing in himself. He just solidified it. Pharaoh was not a God-loving guy. He was not out looking for a spiritual father. He He was not open to, he was already cold and hard against the Israelites and their God. So God was not forcing Pharaoh into a direction he didn't want to go. And the second thing that I think is really important to notice here is that it's temporary. God hardened Pharaoh's heart for a time, for a moment, so that God's purposes could be filled, fulfilled through Pharaoh. He needed his heart to be hard so that he could show what he was going to do and so that he could, he could release the people. All right? So it's not like God didn't say, Pharaoh, I've hardened your heart forever and you're never going to be able to you know, accept me, follow me, or whatever else. He hardened him for a moment. And so the reason this is important is because people are going, how could the religious leaders miss Jesus? How could Caiaphas, the, the, the chief priest of the nation of Israel when Jesus was here, how could Caiaphas look at the Messiah in his face and not know who he was and not accept him? Because God had a purpose to fulfill. He had a purpose to fulfill. All right, verses 19 through 21, we're actually not going to read those just for time's sake um, because the, basically the question is, well, is that fair to Pharaoh? You know, Pharaoh, you know, if he was just doing God's will, then wasn't he doing something good? And Paul's response to that is, no, 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 you just, yeah, like the clay doesn't look back at the potter and say, why have you made me this way? God can do as he wishes in those moments. And then here's, but here's the, the, the punchline, so to speak, verse 22. But what if God wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering 
the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So the insinuation that Paul is saying, he says, the, um, what, if he, what if God has endured with the vessels of wrath, or the carriers of wrath, the vehicles of, of wrath, all right, that are prepared for destruction? And that destruction doesn't mean eternal separation from God, heaven, and hell. That is a physical destruction. It is the consequence of our sin. So basically, Paul is saying, what if God has endured with this prideful, arrogant, sinful attitude, and he has allowed it to happen, He has allowed the nation of Israel to reject Jesus so that the objects of mercy, those who respond to Jesus, can experience his glory. And so that the the love and the family of God can expand outside of just the Jews. And and this this is purely theoretical, and this is my thought, my assessment. But... If the nation of Israel had accepted Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior, would they have allowed Gentiles in? No, it would have, Christianity would have been for the Jews as, as the nation had been. And so they needed to reject Jesus so that not only Jews could respond to him, but the Gentiles could as well. And so the question, why is God allowing the nation of Israel to reject the Messiah it's so that the fullness of Gentiles can come in. It's so that his family can expand. Yet God is not done with Israel. He is not done with Israel. And, and Paul goes through three prophecies, and we're not going to read them again for time, but he quotes from Hosea, where it says, I will call them my people who were not my people. Meaning Gentiles were not his people before, but I will call them my people. All right, that's what happens in Christ. He quotes Isaiah where Isaiah says the remnant of Israel will be saved. That eventually Israel will turn and accept Jesus Christ as their savior. But that's coming down the line. And then he quotes from Isaiah. He says the Lord has left us a seed so we won't be like Sodom or like Gomorrah meaning God has left the remnant so that the Jews would not be wiped out but would become a part of the family of God. And that's coming, and we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks as Paul fleshes all of this out. And then in verse 30, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. They thought they were owed it. They thought they could earn it. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Of course, the stumbling stone is Jesus. And again, translation to English and how we use words and everything. Stumbling stone is kind of a weak way to put it. Um, what the word that Paul chooses to use here means a collision. A rock of collision. 
a collision that creates bruising and injury. So what he's saying is, here's what happened. The nation of Israel had a head-on collision with the Messiah. And instead of responding in faith, they continued to respond with the law. They came face to face with him and they couldn't accept him, but they need to. And Paul's heart is broken for them, for that fact. That they were so greatly blessed and loved by God. And they missed the greatest blessing. And so his prayer, his desire for them, he's going to say it in chapter 10. His desire for them is that Israel would be saved. And our desire should be the same. And we also need to think about how we feel about our countrymen, our brothers and sisters, and our neighbors. And we have, whether we have the same kind of heartbroken stance and compassion for them that Paul has for his countrymen and women. We are surrounded by people in a Christian nation who think that they're right before God because they were born into a Christian home. Or because they go to church every week. Or because they give money to certain organizations. Or because they have a, a Bible sitting on their table or on their mantle. Or because when, the, when, the, when the, the form, the census form comes to them and they have to choose what religion they are, they check the Christian box. But they have not put their faith in Jesus. And they are just as lost as Israel is. And living in a, a society, in a culture here, like Rowan County, North Carolina, we have all around us cultural and social heritage Christians that think they're right before God, but they haven't trusted in Jesus. And believe it or not, we have people around us in our own society, in our own community, who, have, who know all about Jesus. But they've rejected him because of the way Christians have represented them to him. And we need to have a heart and a passion for people in our community that have not accepted Jesus by faith for whatever reason they haven't. And we should walk around with the same kind of compassion and purpose that Paul does when he talks about what he's talking about here in his nation, in his people, in his country. And so I want to encourage you out of this. First of all, don't you fall into the same trap that Israel fell into and think that it's your bloodline or your family or whatever or your effort and your good work that makes you right before God. It is faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. And so today, put your faith in Jesus for salvation if you've never done that before. Trust in his death on your behalf and his resurrection that gives you life. Trust in him. And then we need to not only appreciate that and know that in ourselves, but, but we need to be praying for Israel and for their salvation. Amen. And we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters around us in our own community and families and their salvation. All right? So we'll, we'll talk more about this as the weeks go on and what this means for Israel. But let's take a moment now to pray, thank God for our salvation, and then we're going to prepare to take communion together. All right? Father, we love you, and um, this day is yours. And so we ask right now that you would show your love to us your mercy, your grace offered to us through Jesus Christ.
And we want you to know how thankful we are for that. It has transformed us and changed us. And we want to not only uh, walk in that ourselves, but we want to influence everyone around us to do the same. And so, Father, we take all of that and we give it to you today. We ask you to lead our hearts into compassion for those around us who, who don't know Christ as their Savior. For Israel, we pray. For our community, we pray that they would receive you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to finish today by taking communion together. And so um, for those of you that aren't familiar with communion, we come forward, we get bread, we get a cup with juice. And this is something that Jesus instructed us to do when we are together, to remember his body, which was given for us, and to remember his blood, which was shed for us. And so as we eat the bread, we think about his body, reflect on his body. And when we drink the cup, we reflect on his blood. It's an important thing for us to do together. And so we're going to do that today and thank him for the salvation that we have, his mercy shown to us. Um, and so what I want to do is I'm going to take a moment and pray. And after I finish praying, uh, we'll start playing a song. And you can start coming down fr from the front first. Just come out in your rows. Come get uh, what you need. Head back to your seat. And then uh, after the song, we'll take communion together. All right. Uh, so let's take a moment and pray and get our hearts and minds set as we get ready to worship God through communion and song. Lord, we love you. We are thankful we are part of your family. It's in Christ that we can be brothers and sisters with you as our Father. And so we thank you for that today, and we're united in that today, and we ask that you empower us as we go out to take this message to all those that you love. It's in your name we pray. Amen.